Hello, and welcome to another episode of African Jeopardy. And I mean, I think it's appropriate to actually say Happy New Year. My name is Ife, and I'm recording from Burton-upon-Trent, somewhere in England. Today, we're going to be talking about environmental racism. Hello, my name is Dihi Abel Habib, um, and I'm the co-host of African Jeopardy, and I'm recording with Ife and our guest today um, uh, from Vancouver. Before we start um, into, by introducing our guest, I'd like to define what we mean by environmental racism, just for clarity. And today we'll be using Chavis's definition, which is racial discrimination in environmental policymaking and enforcement of regulation and laws, the deliberate targeting of communities of color for toxic waste facilities, the official sanctioning of the presence of life-threatening poisons and pollutant for communities of color. And although this is sort of a term we have used today, but it has also been described in different forms. It has been described as toxic terrorism. It has been described as um, toxic imperialism. And we have a really um, a guest that is very knowledgeable in this subject, especially in the perspective of the United States of America. Yes, our guest today is Frances Roberts uh, Gregory, who is an eco-womanist ethnographer and PhD candidate in society and environment at the, uh, the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, she, looked, she lectured on climate justice, environmental racism, digital media, and gentle, gender justice at Tulane University and uh, Bard Early College, New Orleans. Frances also consulted for the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice as the project manager for the Gulf uh, Equity Water Corps project. Her current research explores women of color, post-apocalyptic uh, imagining and state corporate crime in Louisiana. She is a founding member of the feminist agenda for a Green New Deal and hopes to increase the underrepresentation of grassroots women of color in climate policy in the future. So we'd like um, with Ife to welcome uh, Francis with, with us today, um, the expert, I guess, um, um, uh, with us today on environmental racism. Welcome, Francis, and thank you, for, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. So I would like you to um, introduce yourself again to our audience and then tell us, I mean, because we know that environmental racism is something that is primarily, I mean, before now that it has become internationalized and we're going to be speaking about some examples of how it has manifested in the African continent. But we know that this is something that is quite big in the United States. So we'd like you to tell us a bit about yourself and your work and then how it's manifest in the United States, how environmental racism is actually manifesting itself in the United States. Right, right. So again, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this topic is near and dear to my heart because of who I am and where I come from. So I am from the United States. I am a Black woman, a woman of color, and I actually come from three environmental justice communities, which means that I come from three communities 
that have been impacted by uh, environmental racism, toxic waste, uh, lack of regulation, and enforcement of environmental policies. And so, unfortunately, I should actually, I should say, unfortunately, I was not aware that I was from three environmental justice communities, or I should say I have connections to three environmental justice communities growing up because oftentimes uh, communities of color are unaware of what's going on um, right uh, in their own, well, I should say they're unaware, oftentimes they're unaware of what's going on until it's too late. And so it wasn't until I went to college at Spelman, I went to Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, that I learned about the impacts of environmental racism on low income, um, communities of color in both rural and urban geographies. And so I learned over time that my grandmother's community in Duplin County, North Carolina, was there's more hogs in, that, in Duplin County than there are people. They deal with a lot of pollution, air pollution, soil water pollution as a result of the um, unregulated industrial hog and chicken farming. In college, I learned about the lack of regulation of a junkyard that was located next to my great aunt on my grandfather's side community in Augusta, Georgia, another rural community. Um, and my aunt's house was eventually taken via eminent domain um, a few years ago when they decided that they wanted to, um, I guess you could say clean up the area, but uh, there's community folk who say, actually, they're not trying to clean it up. They just want to use the land for other purposes. So there's this um, tension between who's, uh, who's, uh, what's the appropriate land use and also um, a lack of distrust. So people don't really know what to believe. Then I was born in Newark, New Jersey. Um, in Newark, New Jersey, there's the Passaic River um, and there's um, dumping unregulated industrial dumping for many, many, many years. And so there's uh, dioxin, um, there's dioxin, there's so many different chemicals, um, chemicals that were a byproduct of the uh, production of Agent Orange, which um, you may know was used during the Vietnam War. So many of these geographies, whether they're urban or rural, uh, if there's people of color, there's dumping of toxin, there's a lack of enforcement of environmental regulation. So that's impacted me personally. So today, um, fast forward to 2019, I am finishing up my, my doctoral research at the University of California, Berkeley. And so I study environmental racism as well as um, women's environmental activism, particularly as it relates to climate change um, in the Southern United States. So I currently live in New Orleans, Louisiana, and for the past two years, or two or more years, I would say, I've been documenting how Gulf Coast women of color navigate contradictory relationships with energy and petrochemical industries. Also, how they advocate for energy climate uh, solutions, and also how do they imagine the future in a region that has experienced Hurricane Katrina, that's home to many petrochemical industries, especially in a strip of land known as Cancer Alley, also in a region where 
uh, Louisiana loses a football-sized field of land every 30 minutes as a result of rising seas, um, land loss, erosion, just a host of many of of many wicked environmental problems. So, how do people, you know, survive and thrive in these regions that deal with a host of environmental issues? And also, what's the role of women? in protecting their communities and imagining future possibilities. So I hope I answered your questions. So that's a little bit about who I am, why I do what I do, and what my doctorate focuses on. It's actually heartbreaking, you know, to hear, especially with the three communities and the stories that you just told us. Um, it's really hard. Why, why do you think that happens? I mean, we're talking about racism, obviously, but like, how does that come to life? You know, like that lack of lack of regulation, that race actually, which basically manifests itself in racism. How, how, and why? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to, um, to get your perspective on this. And actually, probably, probably going through the reality of it, the sad reality of it. But just trying to understand, like, the agenda of, of the government. Yeah. Well. Hmm. I feel like that's a philosophical question, so <laughs> I think there's a lot of answers, but I would say it has to do with the founding of, from, for the United States, not that this, this is not something I want to emphasize, this is not something that only impacts the U.S., which I think we'll go into later, but at least from a U.S. standpoint, the U.S. was founded via um, the transatlantic slave trade yes. and the uh, the you know settler colonialism so the genocide of um, indigenous peoples and so when you in theory try to create a democracy um, and you have people who were formerly seen as less than human or seen as property you have to figure out you know you you have to figure out what to do with those individuals but also where they will live and so what happens is because of the history of segregation and resegregation in this country certain communities were designated as white communities and certain communities were designated as communities of color and so when you have after world war ii the growth of the chemical industries in this country you know they you they when they think about where to put their waste you know, the path of least resistance. Like they think about who has the least amount of political power, who's going to, um, you know, who, who are, who's gonna vote? Cause a lot of people say not in my backyard. So oftentimes these industries are slated for community, uh, I guess you could say wealthier communities or communities that are not, um, that are white. And they say, not in my backyard. So then they have to rezone. They have to figure out new communities that will accept the waste. And oftentimes, I should add, these communities welcome uh, the economic opportunities brought about by the chicken and hog farms or the petrochemical industry. So people didn't know the harmful impacts that these industries would have on human health and the environment. So I would say it's a multitude of factors that 
contribute to why this is unfortunately a very common story um, in communities of color. Um, but it goes back to, I would say, valuing of, of profit over people mm-hmm. and also othering in society, no matter if it's racial or gender, you know, I mean, that it happens all over the world. Yes. But also, like when you, as you mentioned, um, they welcome these opportunities because they're usually poorer than the average other community in the West and the world. So it doesn't really matter. This is like a question is it really a matter of choice for them to, to welcome those opportunities or necessity to welcome those opportunities? It's just like wondering there. Like, you know, when you have no jobs, uh, no economic opportunities, there's a big project coming in. You may choose and choice quote unquote here to um, not know about the impacts um, of those opportunities on your community on yourself on your health on your environment etc basically and we see this in a lot of other places as well in the world and i think if you can you can speak to this as well um, you know the lack of choice or the disguised choice you know of welcoming those opportunities and and disregarding or not knowing their environmental implications And that is the interesting point. You know, I I was just waiting for you to finish there. And then you used the term disguised choice. And that is the problem. Because as you you mentioned, Francis, you know, like looking at it from the political perspective, communities that are unlikely to resist. And we're now trying to take, I mean, move away from the perspective of the United States to the international level. And then look at it from the communities that are unable to resist, and in this sense, those in the global south. And the term you used, disguised, is what we're finding to be very common if we apply this to the African continent, whereby, obviously, with this introduction of more stringent rules in the United States and also in Europe about um, discarding of toxic waste, Western waste waste brokers had to look for an alternative way of um, I guess, um, discarding their waste. And they looked to countries in, in the African continent. But it's not that they looked to the countries in the African continent or those in developing countries, especially those in global south, that is the problem. The problem, however, is that they would usually conceal the real content of this waste. Mm-hmm. And a classic example is that of cocoa in Delta states. I mean, this, is, this was one of the things that shocked the global communities. In, in 1988, about 40,000 tons of toxic waste, disguised as non-toxic, was dumped in cocoa. Cocoa is in Delta state, one of the Niger Delta um, states in Nigeria, by and an Italian importer, but obviously he worked, he collaborated with the Western web broker and they paid a paltry $100 per month to dispose of this waste. But this was toxic. It had health implication for the, not only the person that actually helped with the discarding, but also for the communities. It didn't stop there. Although following what happened in Coco, we, we then saw the introduction of um, the Basel Convention on the Control of Transboundary Movements of Hazardous Waste in 1989. And then obviously because the African states were like, oh, but hang on a minute, this doesn't quite go far enough. In 1991, we had the Bamako Convention on the Prohibition 
of the impact, uh, import of, uh, into Africa of hazardous waste. This was in 1991. But then we also saw a very big or controversial case, although we have this international and regional conventions that are there to make sure that developed countries do not take advantage of developing countries, especially those in the African continent. Of course, we're focusing in Africa because this is African jeopardy. But in 2006, we had this big case of Transfig Transfigura, and a European company is a multi-billion company that actually still exists today. They tried to dispose of their waste in different places, but they were found out. They tried in the Netherlands, and they were charged, they were going to be charged more than half a million euros to properly dispose of this waste. But no, they didn't want to pay it, even though if they did it the right way, they would still make profit because they're a big company. They disguised the waste. They decided to disguise the content and then contacted someone or a company in Côte d'Ivoire. This was in 2006. They paid him less than 80,000 euros to dispose of it. The waste was disposed in more than 10 different sites. What happened? It led to the death of more than 12 people. And over 100,000 people fell ill. This was in the Ebrier Lagoon area, of course, in Abidjan, the capital of Ivory Coast. But the interesting thing about this, and in talking about the deceit associated with this, and why we're calling it, I guess, you can now call it environmental racism at the international scale, is that 13 years on, I mean, I visited the Ivory Coast less than two months ago, and it was very interesting to read a UN, UNE, United Nations Environmental Program report that stated that two out of the many sites that this um, toxic waste was disposed were still contaminated 13 years on. And this is to tell you the extent and, and, and the level of disregard, and I'm sorry, I mean, Racism is quite controversial because people don't want to be associated or seen as being racist. But do we then call it environmental terrorism as it has been described by some scholars? Or is it better to call it um, toxic colonialism or imperialism? Whatever suits you. But the reality is that in 2019, we still know that it happens. That Western waste brokers, especially those in the global north, find it very comfortable to, I know obviously we would likely talk about governments of countries in the African continent being complicit in that they sometimes allow this to happen in exchange of revenue and we can give examples. But the fact that someone feels that or some, a group of people feel that they are more deserving or their environment is worthy of preservation than other people to the point that they are willing to disguise the extent or the level of toxicity in the waste they want to dispose or export to that country in exchange for little amount of money, which would obviously mean that the waste is not properly disposed when it gets to the destination, is for me the highest level of environmental racism. And, and I feel that is something that is completely unacceptable, especially when we take into account that a lot of these countries in the global south, again, especially those in the African continent, are battling with 
the impact of pollution from industrialization within their own countries yeah. and the impact of climate change. And then we have tons or thousands of tons of toxic waste disguised as non-toxic that is coming in and dumped in the environment. It's just not acceptable. Are the terms exclusive though, environmental terrorism and environmental racism? Um, just asking the question out there, like I, I, I quite frankly, I'm not sure they are exclusive. I think they're both going together. We don't have to choose between the two terms. Oh you? no, I mean, there's also environmental justice. I mean, um, Francis, you will speak to this more than, than me, but there, it's different scholars different, define it differently, I guess, to suit their audience, to so appear not to be, I guess, non-controversial, but hey, Francis, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think I agree with you both. Like, for me, it's, like you said, different scholars coming from different disciplines or different countries use different terms. But at the end of the day, it's the same phenomenon. So I don't, I don't really, like for me, environmental racism resonates because of the history of the environmental justice movement coming out of the civil rights movement so like for me it's definitely about racism but that doesn't mean it's not about colonialism or sexism or any or uh you know any of or imperialism so toxic colonialism also really resonates with me i mean i've also heard scholars like feminist scholars say climate apartheid because oftentimes these industrial pollutant also contribute to rising greenhouse gas emissions so we're it's it's not even just the pollution it's the contribution or i should say the impact on current generations it also has an impact on future generations so for me the same people involved in at least or i should say from my observations many of the same individuals that have been involved in human rights um, struggles over human rights are also involved in struggles over toxic pollution and also involved in struggles over climate change. So it's really at its root, the same issue. It just manifests differently, I think, in different places. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't, yeah, thank you. I, I can't stop thinking as we were talking about that little community in the Gambia, West Africa, actually. Um, Back in my mind, I did not stop about, you know that story um, of the Chinese company. Um, I forgot the name of the company. I should not mention it, anyways. Um, but, you know, who who knows? You never know. You never know. Um, yeah, although it's been like all over the news. Um, that that company that had two trawlers that came in first started fishing. Um, for this small pelagic fish that we call we call sardinella that people eat in the region, like they rely on it. It, it can go up to 70% annual protein intake. And they use it as fish meal, but it does not stop there. They actually dump their waste um, in a coastal area where people go fishing. And they have been talking, people have been talking, they went to court, they have been talking about um, people getting sick, they have been talking about fish not being there anymore because of the pollution, but they've been dumping, continuously dumping those those vessels. Um, and I cannot stop thinking about that, actually, like just trying to link the dots there about environmental terror terrorism and then environmental racism as well. Uh, but it doesn't seem to me that's a matter of like the Chinese state, but like this individual company, and I think it joins a little bit what Ife were saying earlier about that 
that company that tried to dump the waste in, in the Netherlands and then later on in Cote d'Ivoire. I can't put the finger on it, but it seems that it's, it's basically the same thing. What do you think? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, again, this is where the issue of complacency, is, when we now talk about how, how has the government allowed it to happen? And so you can make the case, although with the, the, fish, the fisheries waste, you could say that this is obviously lack of clear environmental policy in the Gambia. And the government have presented to be doing something about it because there's this gimmick of going to court and they did different tests and they said that they're actually not doing anything wrong, which is why they've allowed the company to continue to function. And so you could talk about the government basically being ineffective if we use, if we go by the term of what quantifies an effective state. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we know that overall, you could say that toxic waste dumping, especially when it's disguised, it happens because of lack of capacity of states in the African continent to monitor their ports. Because what stops you from testing the content of a cargo that's just been exported into your country, exported from outside into your country? It's basically because you don't have the wherewithal to do that test, to find out the real content. That is why People can disguise things and say, oh, this is harmless fertilizer, this is harmless liquid, and you allow them to bring, them, bring it in without testing it. And so in that case, we can say that government are complacent. But at the same time, there has also been cases of pure corruption. And, and, and basically, and, and there's a, a typical example, again, this was in the 80s, where, whereby there was so much noise about why it shouldn't happen and i know a lot more about this because interestingly i uh, we well i currently have a paper on the review i and my co-author ibokun adewumi we currently have a, um, a paper on the review that is um, titled um toxic waste dumping as environmental racism evidence from gulf of guinea and we have so many examples like the one from equatorial guinea this was in 1988, as far back as 1988, whereby the president, um, Teodoro Biangingwema, which a lot of people know if you're familiar with the African politics, he connived, I could, I could say that, he connived with a British company to store about 10 million drums of toxic waste in an island, Anobon Island, right? Mm -hmm. But because of the proximity of the place to Nigeria and because of environmental outcry, it was alleged that this did not happen. Because obviously Nigeria didn't want it to happen. There was environmental outcry. And then Obian government then came back and said that they rescinded. They did not, um, they didn't go ahead with it. But in 1997, it was found out that the government received about 1.6 million dollars for the contract for it to go ahead right mm -hmm. and then later there was a disclosure an article that was written in 1994 when a swiss press um visited the island they found that oh, well this was what they wrote that obian's government made over 200 million from the deal or a deal of disposing radioactive waste on the island of annabon 
And although in the 1990s that there was military blockade, which was imposed on the island, obviously, which restricted people from visiting, but subsequently there's been evidence of something really bad happening because there's increased physiological problems such as leukemia, ulcers, abscesses, as well as, well as widespread malnutrition amongst the island um, islanders, which is a sign that actually something happened, even when originally people believed that it did not happen. And so this is a, a clear example of complacency. And you can basically say not only corrupt practices, and again, because he's, he's basically the leader of Equatorial Guinea, is basically someone that is not only corrupt, but ineffective in that if he knew, again, there's no way of saying that he knew the, the real extent or the impact, but if he knew explicitly that this was toxic and he still allowed it to happen, and then he's basically as bad as the Western West brokers that approached him, that saw Equatorial Guinea environment to be unworthy of being protected, hence we should be disposing our waste there. And so this has just some of the examples of how African governments sadly are complacent. And then we can still talk about other kind of waste that again, in recent times that has, I mean, e-waste is, is now another big thing that Africa, especially Nigeria and Ghana is basically the dump site for it. And again, you can point, this can point to complacency because directly or indirectly, if you don't have the right tools in your pots, to make sure that certain things don't come true, then we, we have to blame the two parties. And so I hope, I mean, this is basically a, a, a round way of explaining the Gambian example, but basically saying that, that although this is environmental racism, in my case, at the international level, or the international scale, but sometimes government are complacent, maybe not directly, but indirectly, they do not have the right tools in their ports to make sure that some of this waste are detected. Yeah, I, I, oh, sorry, I was just gonna say, um, it's really, it's heartbreaking for me as well to hear some of these examples that I've, I haven't heard about um, previously, but unfortunately, it's just not surprising because I think at the end of the day, all of this for me is the ongoing colonial, like, vi violence, violence of all types, but like, you know, it's, you can see the impacts of imperialism and colonialism when you talk about these examples, like how did this, how did these situations even come to be? And like in my own research, I'm more and more interested in what green criminologists um, call state corporate crime. And there's different ways to look at it, but just saying how, seeing how the, how the, when the interests of the state and corporate entities are aligned, you see all of these human rights, public health, environmental harms that occur. And the state, like you mentioned, is definitely complicit. Um, and even if they're not directly intentionally facilitating it, if they're turning a blind eye to it, which means there's a certain type of neglect and abandonment, that's also a type of harm from a criminal perspective. So definitely the state is, um, should be held responsible in my opinion. Yes, yes. Um, we have five more minutes to go, so we should be wrapping up the, um, our thoughts. Um, our last thoughts I was going to say, but nobody's dying, don't worry. <laughs> 
I'm thinking maybe we should give um, Francis the final say just to yeah. tell us, I mean, what is changing? Has anything changed or is this still business as usual? Because I know there's a lot of issue in the United States, the Flint water. I mean, we didn't have time to get to that, but what, is anything changing? Is, is there any difference? <sighs> well, that's, um, well, we'll see after this next election. <laughs> the United States, we're in a very interesting place. And so I would say really things are getting worse in the U.S. Um, just because we're rolling back so many environmental regulations, people are getting fired, um, posts are going unfilled. Um, even I was reading an article today about how they're going to start doing mining Internet and international waters, deep sea mining, um, which presents its own host of problems. So I don't like to be an alarmist, but I think that we should be concerned. And I think that um, perhaps, maybe I'm being optimistic by strengthening civil society, um, democratic processes, that we can elect people who will you know, at least try to do the right thing to promote sustainability and resilience and, um, you know, hopeful futures for our children and grandchildren. But right now, the people in power don't seem, they seem, like I said, they seem to value their stockholders. They seem to value profits over people. Mm -hmm. Wow. If you're the people in power in the United States right now, I'm thinking just of one particular person, especially. <laughs> I'm not the smartest people on earth. You, know. <laughs> you could say that again. Yeah. No, okay. I didn't say that because I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> I, think I think we're already in trouble. <laughs> okay, no, I can be a wimp, but hey, I mean, realistically, this is really, it's, it's, it is depressing. And and I, I mean, I, I guess a really good um, concluding thought in, in terms of bringing this back to the African continent is, is, is saying that although in 1995, just to sort of avoid or make, put an end to um, the transboundary movement of waste, e-waste, electronic waste, especially from developed countries to developing countries, especially those in West in the African continent, um, the Ban Amendment was introduced. And with the signing of the Ban Amendment by Croatia in September, on the 5th of December this year, it came into force. So I guess this is hoping, we're saying this is hoping that with this Ban Amendment coming into force, that the Basel Convention can be implemented in its entirety. For the African continent in 2018, the Bamako Convention, the State of Bamako Convention met, and they talked about how, I mean, this is no longer acceptable. We have to make sure that things change. But a problem there, however, is that interestingly, two of the countries that have basically become a dumping ground for e-waste that is disguised sometimes, when I say sometimes, because um, in some cases, up to 60% of the waste that is exported into Nigeria as reusable electronics are actually useless. And in Ghana, a UNEP um, research found that up to 2011, if I'm not mistaken, 
up to 15% of the wastes are useless as well. That's but an interesting thing is that two of these countries are not part of the Bamako Convention, mm. which means that even if the African continent decided that we're going to implement this in, a, in its entirety, the loophole, Nigeria and Ghana, can be used as a way to circumvent or sort of prevent sort of not Western countries or Western waste brokers not get persecuted. Yes. In the same way, even with the um, ban amendment coming into force on the 5th of December this year, unfortunately, the United States, I'm not mistaken, I'm sure, is not part of the Basel Convention. Yes, I think... They haven't ratified it, yes. So it also means that they can, it can still be business as usual because who's going to hold them to account? Yes. And so this is hoping, we hope, I know we're just little us, but we're hoping that the right people listen to this and think really hard about the long-term impact of their actions, the legacy they're living, and, and just, just put an end to this. Be fair. How can you justify sending things to a country that doesn't have the assets or wherewithal of disposing a waste? I think properly? we should wrap it up. Oh, uh, hi, hi. I'm so, so sorry about that. We were cut off. But we're just going to wrap up now quickly to say um, thank you so much for listening. And we would like to sort of welcome you in our next episode. We wish you a very happy new year. And please, if you feel that you'd like to um, um, feature as a guest speaker, in our podcast please send us a dm or send a message to us um and we also want to thank francis for joining us and again we want to give you the final say what do you want to say to our audience thank you so much and i hope that you would come again at some point because we really still have some important things to talk about yes. yeah well once again thank you so much for having me here to share my story and the story of my communities but also so that i could learn more about what's going on um in the uh, in the african continent like it's really important that we're well versed in each other's stories because i think that we really do need to collaborate and um be in solidarity so i would say my final my final thoughts are solidarity I guess if it's intercontinental, if that's even the word, solidarity is so important because these issues um, impact us at the local level, but also um, at the international level. Yes, this is really, there's a lot of passion in our podcast today, and I hope our audience could hear it and feel it as well, as much as I felt it. Thank you so much, everybody, and have a good year. Um, you know, um, just inspiring and happy. Um, that's him and happy. Thank you everyone for listening again. This was African Geoparty.